Our scripture reading today is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. For those who are, might be visiting, I'm looking around, for those who might be visiting, a uh, little bit of a change up. Our pastor Jim is, um, is sick today, and so instead of Exodus, we're going to shift over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. In your pew Bible, it's on page 986. The Apostle Paul writes, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. It's been a, a season of officer retreats and a, a refreshing of mission, vision, and values for the church, all of which can be found on the website if you want to reflect on those again. It's been a season of budgeting, particularly for missions development and focus on Christ's covenant church being more outward and not the natural tendency of turning inward. And so in that season of thinking through those things, I hope to encourage that thought even more, but also perhaps give you some interesting categories to think about how the Lord is working among us from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, the church at Thessalonica was uh, the result of a mission trip as all churches are, all freshly planted churches are a result of some mission of God going into a neighborhood or a city. Paul was sent out of Asia Minor on the heels. You should know this. God sends him out of Asia Minor in a couple of ways. One, he gets a dream that says, come and help us. But also because there's been a personality conflict amongst the early leaders of the church. It happens. It happens now. And God still works. And God still presses on. And in the middle of that, Paul is moved into Asia Minor as he parts ways with Barnabas and into Macedonia to preach the gospel. And here's how he did it. He would go into a local city. He would go into a synagogue if they had one. And he would begin to teach the scriptures. And he would point uh, from those scriptures to Jesus as the fulfillment of those scriptures. We're given that background in Acts chapter 17. That's exactly where we read of the birth of the church at Thessalonica. Paul serves a brief prison sentence before he gets to Thessalonica. When he's released out of Philippi, 
He travels to Thessalonica, and what does he do? He finds a synagogue. And the Bible says he teaches there for three weeks. It doesn't take long. Three weeks later, the people of Thessalonica are riled up to such an extent that they want them gone. And so Paul, Silas, and Timothy are loaded up, and they head down the Greek coast being chased out of town. That's the way it happens. But over time, Paul wonders, what happened to the people in Thessalonica? What happened to those believers who began to follow Jesus? And so he sends Timothy back to find out how they're doing. Timothy comes back to unite with Paul in Corinth, and there he has great news and some concerns. It's with this backdrop that Paul writes his very first epistle. This is it. This is the first one to the Thessalonian church. And our time today is to look into that first chapter, those first ten verses, and glean just a few truths that are uh, applicable to what we're doing as a church as we think about mission and gospel effort and moving outward and fighting to not remain inward, right? The three headings, the three uh, points that we'll be making, the gospel comes in power. In other words, what happens when the gospel comes to a new town? Number two, the gospel goes in proclamation. How is it that the gospel leapfrogs from place to place? And then finally, the gospel returns as part of the promise. And you'll understand how is it that the gospel endures many, many obstacles. Up first, the gospel comes in power. When Paul says that the gospel came to the Thessalonians, quote, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, he is describing the transformative influence that the gospel has in the life of people. The gospel is a set of words. It is a message about the person and work of Christ, but it is not only words. Here's how you know that the gospel is coming to you. If you're a believer, or if you're a non-believer, if you're a skeptic, if you're trying to figure things out, if you want to know what, what's this all about, Here's how you know if the gospel is coming to you in power. Here are some things that mark that. Number one, you begin to realize that the message of the gospel is causing some discomfort in your life. That's what happens. You recognize that the message of the gospel is more than just taking up your time here in church. It's not just filling this hour. It starts to follow you. It starts to fill your private thoughts. What is this about? What is the purpose you begin asking yourselves the big questions. Who is God? Why am I here? What's my relationship to all the people around me? Who am I? You begin to realize that these questions are accompanied by pivotal moments in your life. A relationship that's in crisis. A job offer that you really want to consider. Being passed over for an opportunity that you really wanted. In the midst of all that, you begin to sense that there is some discomfort coming as a result of this message about who Jesus is. In the midst of those circumstances, Tim Keller says that you realize that the gospel is not simply your questions and your issues, that the gospel is the power of someone engaging with you. That's what's happening. 
That someone is Jesus Christ. The work of the Spirit is to point you to Him and to bring these questions, these big questions, to bear on your heart. It is also the work of the Spirit to bring you to full conviction that Jesus is who He said He was. And by the way, this may cause, probably will cause, more difficulty, not less. Because once you're convinced about who Jesus is and what He came to do, you realize that you have to stop bargaining with Him and acknowledge that He can ask you whatever He wants. And that is life-changing. It is transformative. Believing upon Him and turning from your sin is what makes you Christian to begin with. You recognize the work of Christ in others and your life is being changed to align with Him. And here are some of the indicators that once you've been impacted by Jesus and now you do understand who He is and believe Him, here are some of the changes that come. Just a few. Number one, you begin to have an actual affection for Jesus. You begin to love Him and understand more and more why you love Him. You begin to understand the importance of the community that He makes you a part of. We call that the church. You understand the church is filled with problems. Filled. But Jesus is using the church to change the world through the gospel. You begin to move the furniture around in your life, if you can follow the analogy. You begin to move the furniture around in your life to make the priorities of the king and the kingdom your priorities. Things like stuff that you want to buy starts to get rearranged. Vacations that you want to take, maybe not. Power that you desire the next house, the next stepping stone at work, all become secondary considerations to what God wants you to do. That's how you know the gospel has come to town. You consider giving to be more important than taking. And you want to be generous, just as God has been generous to you. You realize He has given you everything, and you begin to wonder, what else can I give in gratitude? You stop measuring others by your own life and you begin to evaluate yourself and others on the work of Jesus and your need for Him. And then finally, if you want to know how do you know that the Gospels come to town and affected your life and changed you, you move away from trying to save yourself every day and you look to Him as your deliverer. It's why the Apostle Paul says that the Gospel came to you Because the gospel is not just words or a message. It is power. It is the power of a person. Jesus Christ. And Jesus engages those who are without purpose and without hope and brings them to faith and repentance by the Spirit of God. But the gospel does not just come to you as a Christian. It also goes out from you in proclamation. Verses 6 through 9 state this. You became imitators of us and the Lord. You received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Are you following the movement of the gospel here? It comes to you by the grace of God. It makes you his. That's the work. 
And then in true mission fashion, it goes out from you in proclamation. It reverberates out of your life to others. It moves you into action in sharing gospel truth with those in your life. This is how you know that a church is healthy. The gospel comes to town. It reverberates in good news to the world around us, near and far, home and across borders. That's how you know that a church is healthy, that the gospel is going out. It was that way for the Thessalonians. Not only did they receive the gospel that came to them, but they were also careful to give it to their neighbors, both nearby and around the region. Did you catch the obstacles and the distances that it overcame in that passage? Here's just a few. In spite of affliction, meaning just this, the same treatment that Paul and Silas and Timothy got, going to jail, getting beat up, getting run out of town, you don't think that just stopped once they left. Well, the gospel came to town. It was changing people's lives, and the people of Thessalonica were also experiencing difficulty and affliction. And Paul says, it was going forth from you in spite of that. Number two, it, it went out in encouragement towards other believers in joy. That the Thessalonians became examples for other people. That we should become examples for other people of what the, what the joy of, of following Christ should look like. And then finally, it says this, that they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. Turning from idols includes money, sex, power. Most of you, most of us, most of our community is pursuing those things. Money, sex, power. But that's not the only idols that you can have in your life. Anything that you put ultimate value in is an idol. That you put all of your chips on, that's an idol. Let me add to that list with just a few examples. If your children or the raising of your children is what you're getting your ultimate value from, you have an idol. You have an idol that you need to turn from and serve the living and the true God. If you think your marriage is the end-all, be-all of your existence, you need to turn from that idol and serve the living and the true God. If you think getting married would be the thing that finally makes you worthy in the sight of others, you have an idol, and you need to turn from it in the light of the living and true God. This is the kind of proclamation that was sounding forth from the church at Thessalonica, both near and far. And in doing so, listen to this, the Thessalonians made, uh, they avoided a clear mistake that lots of churches make. It is one that Christ's covenant and all churches need to avoid. And here it is, that the work of missions, that the work of proclamation, evangelism, belongs to the paid professional. That's the mistake you and I have to avoid. One of the signs of life and health for the Thessalonians was that they did not view proclamation as the work of a special class of Christians. And perhaps the best report anyone could ever get on the work of a church, Paul says, we got to other places in the region and we didn't have to say anything because your faith your repentance, the word of God had sounded forth from you to 
to others so that we did not have to say anything. That is amazing. That is simply amazing. That the gospel was sounding forth from them in such a way. Most of our understanding of Western missions has been in the category of someone else goes, we hang back and pray and finance that work. Or we consider the gift of our pastors or our pastor, uniquely called by God to lead churches, and they are, to be the conduit of the gospel while we just encourage him to go out there and do the good work. And that may be your role in some cases. And there's nothing wrong with supporting the work of other Christians in proclamation. In fact, you are called by God to support to the best of your ability that work. It is a vow that you took when you joined this church, for those who have joined and taken vows. But if we stop short of seeing our responsibility in reaching our home, our community, our region, our world, then we're leaving out a significant element of why we exist. Steve Saint is the son of Nate Saint. Nate Saint was one of the five missionaries that in Quito, Ecuador, was landing a plane on a sandbar. And those five missionaries were going in regularly to proclaim the gospel to a tribe in Ecuador. And as they landed that plane on that sandbar one day, the, the tribe came out, and in fear of those missionaries, they speared them all to death. The story sent shockwaves around the world. So much missionary money was given as a result of that story that most of the mission's efforts we can think of were affected in some way by the recounting of that story. Those who survived it, the family members who survived it, have told that story. For the last hundred years, it may be the most famous missionary story of the Western Hemisphere. But when Steve, now an older man, goes back into Ecuador, he begins to evaluate the work of the mission. And here's his conclusion, that they were not fulfilling the Great Commission. Oh, they were going and doing missions work, and they were proclaiming, and they were baptizing, and they were making a church, but when they left, all that work stopped. Because in the minds of the people who were there in Ecuador, that was the work of the Americans. That's the missionaries' work. They had not discipled those believers into understanding that their role was to take the gospel to the next tribe and to Peru and to Brazil. That was their role. Steve Saint's book, The Great Omission, is a focus on that principle, that Western mission stopped short in some ways of discipling people who became believers to go and take the gospel themselves. Each believer has, as a result of knowing Jesus, the responsibility to reach the world for Jesus. When Steve Saint returned to Ecuador, all those things were sitting empty, no baptisms, no sermons were being preached, and he recognized that fact. That book has as its focus the commitment to discipling others into planning to reach the world for Christ. Don't fall into the same trap of thinking that a special class of Christians, that the paid professionals are the ones who have to go do the work. Yes, support missions efforts. You should. Help fund missionaries and Christian work around the world. You should. But no, 
please don't conclude that the work of evangelism and discipleship belongs to the professionals. Yes, pray for your pastor, encourage him in every way that you can to preach the gospel, but no, don't conclude that it's his work to carry the message of Jesus in your place. You are the conduit. Jesus came to you. You are the conduit. For the Thessalonians, Paul's concern for their health as a church was quieted and overwhelmed by a vibrant gospel effort that was sounding forth from them and making a difference in their world. So the gospel comes in power. It goes out from us in proclamation. And then finally, the gospel returns according to promise. In this passage and in others later in this letter and in the second letter, the Apostle Paul commends the church at Thessalonica for its faithfulness in spite of major obstacles but also for their anticipation of the return of Christ. It was not simply a yearning for a better place. They were waiting for Jesus to come back. Paul spoke of Christ's return, and the church took it to heart, even causing some confusion over the timing of that return, as we discover in the second letter. But one thing is certain, they were waiting for Jesus to come. And you might get the impression, if I've lost you, come back. You might get the impression that waiting for Jesus is a very passive enterprise. Even hearing it as I say it, waiting for Jesus, may bring up images of being um, still. Not a bad thing. But that can't be all that waiting is. Waiting in this sense is not like being put on hold on a call or sitting in a room in preparation for someone to call you back for an appointment. Waiting in the Bible is extremely active and important. It is used over and over again, this term of waiting, to describe activity until Jesus returns. And here are those activities. Loving your spouses unto the glory of Christ is waiting actively. Raising your children to love Jesus is waiting actively. Serving in your church is part of waiting faithfully for Jesus. Paul later tells the Thessalonians in the second letter that doing the work of vocation, doing what you're paid to do every day, hear this, is part of you actively waiting for Jesus. If you go and do your job to the best of your ability as unto the Lord as the scriptures teach, you are actively waiting for Jesus. Waiting is supposed to to result in several good things. Uh, First, it sharpens your faith. It moves you to prayer. Grows in us a longing for our real home. This is not it. And that's where we've got to think about it a little while. This is not it. It's a great place. I love you. You love me. But this is not our home. Second, it brings our lives into crystal clear focus on what really matters. It makes you choose between good things and better things if you are actively waiting for Jesus. Good things and better things. You have those choices every day. Every day. And actively waiting for Jesus affects that. Third, it reminds us that as Christians, we're supposed to be about it. And what I don't mean is thinking about it or talking about it, although we do and should. 
But we're supposed to be about it. We are to get our priorities in line with His. We're to develop plans and strategies for cultural impact. We just came through a season of that as a church. And then we're supposed to execute those plans to the best of our ability with the resources that we have. We do this individually, as families, as churches, as presbyteries, as networks, and as denominations. We're to be about the work. It was one of the great joys of raising my kids with a thought on mission. Even in our family mission statement, we talk about the principles of being outward. It was not a surprise for my kids to come home from school or to get up from the school tables and to find another missionary staying upstairs with us. That was not a surprise. It happened pretty often. Visits from Bulgaria, Kenya, South Africa, Russia, just some of the nations that were represented in the upstairs bedroom as they came to visit. But it wasn't just brothers and sisters coming from all over the world to visit here and stay with us for a few days or a week or so. We also committed that we would go see them, that we would go find them where they were. And so we went to Kenya, Sri Lanka, Egypt, Togo, Peru, India, Germany, Malta. We went to Ethiopia, Uganda, Madagascar. We wanted our kids to know what it was like to follow Jesus in places far more economically and politically difficult than our neighborhoods. We wanted them to see that and to meet their brothers and sisters everywhere else. We also wanted to help them see a few things about the church that only a healthy mission focus can give you. First, that the church, and hear this, please, the church is the most diverse group, body on planet Earth. I know that message hits you all the time from multiple directions, but let me tell you, the most diverse body on planet Earth is the church, the followers of Jesus Christ all over the planet. That is a mighty diverse group of people. And we're in the PCA. It's got a pretty narrow demographic in some ways. It's not intentional. It's just the way things kind of work out naturally happens, but travel challenges your prejudged practices about the quality of buildings that God uses, right? About the food, sometimes difficult to eat. He challenges your practices about giving when you only have a little bit to give. He challenges that. He challenges your preferences on music when you go to places where the music's not your style. Only getting out there can address those preconceived notions for you. Number two, that the church is far more influential than we often see on our turf. This is the message that we hear. The church is dying. The church is becoming irrelevant. The church is, is meaningless. And I know that that's a message that's hitting you regularly. But get out. Go see your brothers and sisters in other places and you'll find out the church has far more influence than you're being told. It's having a lot more impact than you can see maybe in your own backyard. It really is. It's a reminder that in New Testament gospel mission, it spreads out in grand fashion and that we don't often get to see that as clearly in our parishes, in our backyards. Number three, 
The church is more resilient than we observe. We are being told that the church is dying. And in some ways, in some ways, nominal Christianity is. And I think that's okay. Nominal Christianity probably should. Eventually, nominal Christianity will not exist. But real, committed followers of Jesus are pressing on here and around the world. Don't believe all that you read about the demise of the church. She's thriving in many ways. I'd love to say more about it here, but my invitation is go. Go and see. Go and be a part of it. Go and see your brothers and sisters. Deciding to double down on your commitment to missions or giving or going are all evidences of being transformed by the gospel. The gospel coming to you, going out from you, and continuing to impact the world around us to this day. But there will be those of you who hear this message as I wrap up and I say this. You'll, you'll hear this message and you'll ask why. Why sacrifice the next vacation that we have planned and go some, to some difficult place? Or the next big ticket item that you want to buy? Forgo that and go see your brothers and sisters or give that to missions. Why would you do it? Or even the thought about just Sundays. Man, I'm sacrificing one day a week of stuff that I could, I could go do other things. And even this activity can cause you some social discomfort, right? Or social pain. Just being associated with a Bible-believing, faithful, Christ-honoring church. There's some social pain that comes as a result of that in our context. So why would you do it? Why would anyone endure suffering or sacrifice their own comfort and forego other seemingly good goals for these things? And the answer is pretty simple, because that is exactly what Jesus did to come get you. Gave up all of his benefits. Gave up all of his comfort. Took upon himself all of your suffering and sin. If you're a Christian, there's suffering that you'll never experience because of what Jesus did. Ultimate suffering that you'll never, ever, ever experience. And he gave all that up and came to a low place so that we might benefit. His sacrifice, his willingness to give up his place of comfort, his desire to suffer so that you would flourish is a powerful reason why you should follow him and do the same. Not so that he might love you. If you're a Christian, he already does. So that you might understand what it is he made you for, what it is he left you here for. Why are you here? And then secondly, Paul says this, that Jesus was indeed raised from the dead. His message is powerful and proven by his resurrected life. And they lived in gratitude, not because uh, Jesus sacrificed for them. He also delivered them from the wrath to come. Verse 10 is pretty powerful. They were waiting for Jesus, who delivered them from the wrath to come. We are called to be like him in his suffering that our joy may be made full by participating in the mission that he's on. So take this home with you. Here's three quick things. The gospel is a power. It transforms your life to look more like his. Secondly, the gospel should leapfrog from us to other places. We have the responsibility for our home, our neighborhood, our community. We should push to give more, go regularly, and pray intently so that the gospel takes root around us. 
And finally, the gospel should continue to grow in our hearts and efforts because Jesus is coming back for us. He's coming back for you. He's coming back for me. He's delivered you from the wrath to come. So let's wait actively, faithfully. That should motivate us for gratitude and service because he's delivered us from the wrath to come because of his death, his perfect life, his resurrection. All glory to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the way that you have sent your son to enter into this world and sacrifice and suffer so that we, your people, might never taste the wrath to come. But in the meantime, we do experience difficulty. We share in the sufferings of Christ because we're identified with him. And so I pray for Christ's covenant church. I pray for the churches in our presbytery. I pray for all the gospel-centered churches in this area that you would give us fresh hope and joy in the gospel. The power of Jesus Christ coming to us. Would you help us to proclaim that message? Would you help us to do that to your glory? We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.